Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 11 through, I'm sorry, not 11, 13 through 17. Revelation chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. I'll read, I'll read out the Christian Standard Bible. It's not too different from your own translation. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the chair under you or in front of you. It's the New International Version, and that would be on page 868. Okay? Page 868, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, as we make our way through the seven letters, or the letters to the seven churches in Asia. Hear then the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 2. Verse 12, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum, thus says the one who has a sharp double-edged sword, I know where you live, yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Father, we pray that you would press these words into our soul. We thank you, Lord, that when you speak, when your word is read, your voice is heard. And so, Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to us as a church. As we read the words of Christ to the churches and to Bethany Baptist Church this morning, we ask for hearts that are open, hearts that are soft, hearts that are receptive, hearts that are humble and contrite and trembling at your word. We want to draw near to you. And see your greatness. We want you to speak, Lord, as we just sang and prayed, that this church would be built and the earth would be filled with your glory. This is not possible apart from Jesus Christ, apart from his words, and apart from his spirit. And so we ask for your help now, because we desperately need it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever drove down an unfamiliar part of a freeway and going down for several exits only to eventually realize that you're going the wrong direction. Thought you were going north and you're going south or you didn't realize which way you're going to go and it's due to the fact that you're not familiar with the freeway you're going. I did that a few years back and lost... I was very tight on time and I lost about 40 minutes. I was driving for 20 minutes and then I had to make up the 20 minutes going back before I could get to where I started to get to where I was going. That's a small consequence to get that wrong. But my greatest fear, my greatest fear 
is meeting Jesus on judgment day where I come to him and I say, Lord, here I am. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. That's what, that's what it says in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Didn't I preach? Didn't I pastor? Didn't I try to raise my kids well? Didn't I try to love my neighbors? Didn't I love my neighbors? I never knew you, PJ. Depart from me, you lawbreaker. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about Revelation 2 that touches on this fear and leads to my second greatest fear. Charles Spurgeon writes about Revelation 2. Does, does the Lord Jesus come to his church in that way with a sword? Does he, at, does he at the door of the church bear a sword? A sword unscabbarded? A sharp sword? A sharp sword with two edges? Yes, even to his visible church, this is how the Lord Jesus Christ appears. He turns the sword against those within the church who had no right to be there. It is no trifling thing to be a church member. I could earnestly wish that certain professors had never been members of a church at all. For if they had been outside the church, they might have been in far less peril than they would within its bounds. Outside, their conduct might have been tolerated. But it is not consistent with an avowal of discipleship towards Jesus. I say this with deep sorrow. Oh, false professors, you may go down to hell readily enough without increasing your damnation by coming into Christ's church with a lie in your right hand. Alas, for those who are not Christians in heart and yet profess to be so, such ought to be startled by the vision of the Lord himself drawing near to a church with a sharp sword in his hand. Wow. My second greatest fear, it's sharing life with my church family, with church members who have deceived themselves into thinking they're Christian and then facing judgment and in part not realizing that they are going to be surprised because of my neglect as a fellow church member and as a pastor who didn't warn them, who did not gospelize them, who did not ask them deeper questions about how they were doing, especially as one who's in charge of overseeing their souls, as one who will give an account. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 31 and 34, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to the one on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So my second greatest fear is as Christ is separating people and we see fellow church members over the years and thinking, here we go, I'm on this side. And then you see, oh yeah, they're going to come. And then Christ puts your fellow church member, you think they're coming on your side, and then he's putting them on the other side. And they're about to go to the lake of fire forever. That's my second greatest fear. 
that through my neglect as a member and as a pastor, they would not have been warned properly when I could have warned them, when I could have edified them, when I could have challenged them, when I could have confronted them. We are in danger of going the wrong way, not just down a freeway. We're in danger of going the wrong way as a church without realizing it. And this mistake can cost us or our loved ones, our fellow members, their eternal existence. Church health, we talk about church health a lot in this church. Church health is not a game. It's not a way of comparing yourself with other churches to say we're healthier than that church. It's a matter of heaven and hell for those who are part of our church and those who interact with our church and visit our church. The stakes cannot be higher. Each letter of these seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3 calls us to listen to the Spirit. Each letter describes the reward for those who conquer. And it tells us, in a sense, how we are to conquer. In this passage, the way the church conquers Satan, the world, and our own sin within our ranks and within our own souls, the way we conquer is by repenting. Repenting. So, the main idea of this text is this. Jesus calls you to realize and repent of the sin that you as a church, that we as a church, have been tricked into holding. Okay? That's what Jesus is telling us today. Bethany Baptist Church, Jesus is saying to us as a church, you are to realize and repent of the sin that you have been tricked into holding. You didn't realize it, but there's sins in this church. And you have been duped into holding and you need to realize it and repent of it. We must repent if we are going to conquer. Now, why specifically, according to this passage, should we repent? I think that's the, the argument of this text is giving us four reasons why we should repent that actually transform our hearts to repent. Okay, so four reasons to repent of the sin that we've been tricked into holding. Reason number one. Repent because you have endured satanic assault. Okay? Repent because you've endured satanic assault. Look at verse 13 or 14 with me. Or 13. So here's Jesus. He's the one who has a sharp double-edged sword. Revelation 2.13. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you, where Satan lives. So where do they live? Who lives where they live? In Pergamum. Who lives there? Satan. And what? Not, he doesn't just live there. What, what's there of his? His what? His throne. His seat. He rules. He runs Pergamum. This is where Satan lives. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean Satan lives in particular cities? Not necessarily, but Satan is there. His presence is there. His effect is there. His activity is there. In one sense, he rules and he runs things there. Now, why would it say of this church that Satan's throne is there and not of the other locations? Well, in Pergamum, that was the first city that had a, a temple built to a living Roman emperor. You always worship the Roman emperors after they died. Well, here, they worship the Roman emperor in 29 BC while he was still alive. That was a new precedent. So they were really big on worshiping the emperor and calling him Lord and God, as Domitian was called in the 90s when Revelation was most likely written. Burn incense to him and call him Lord and God. Once a year, at least. There was also the, the, the god Ascalopius, 
the God of healing and his sign or his symbol was a serpent. And in the Bible, if you're a Christian, the serpent represents who? Satan. Satan. Another way, maybe that's why this is where Satan lives. A third reason why, perhaps, that this is where Satan lives is because Zeus had an altar there at his temple and his altar looked like a throne. And Zeus is the king of the gods, the leader of the gods. And so if that's where his throne is and he's the leader of gods, well, Satan is the leader of the demons. So Satan rules that place. But it's not just because of those temple things. It's because of the actual practice in the city, the idolatry and the pressure on the city that would pressure and persecute Christians. It would get Christians, whether they're high schoolers or children or adults, it would get these Christians to give up their Christianity or to compromise their Christianity, or to be ashamed of their Christianity, or to deny their Christianity. Revelation 12, you could turn there if you're quick enough. It's not too far, but I'm just going to start reading. Revelation 12, 18 gives a symbolism. We talked about it last week. Let's go again to it this week. The dragon stood on the sand of the sea. That's Satan, the dragon. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were crowns, were ten crowns, and on its heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon, Satan, gave the beast, I would say the Antichrist, his power, his throne, and great authority. One of its heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. That's the Antichrist. They worshiped the dragon, Satan, because he gave authority to the beast, the Antichrist. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against the beast? The beast was given a mouth to utter boasts and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. And it was permitted, the beast was permitted to wage war against who? In verse 7 against the saints, and to conquer them. It was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. It has governmental authority. It has social authority. It has pervasive authority, and it's waging war against the saints and trying to conquer Christians. Verse 8, all those who live on earth will worship it. So everyone's going to follow the beast. Different beasts, different cultures and times. Everyone whose name was not written in the, from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. Christian, listen to this. If anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for what? Patience or endurance and faithfulness from the saints. Saints, you have to endure. You have to persevere. You can't give up. You might get killed. You might get jailed. You might get ostracized. You might get made fun of. You might get threatened. You might have relationships that get icy and awkward, but you have to endure and be faithful because the beast rules and he has the culture in his hands. And if you capitulate because you feel like you're just going to get made fun of or ostracized or lose your job, well, Christians have been dealing with this for 2,000 years. The beast has come out. There's ten, seven, seven heads on this beast. The beast has a fatal wound, but he keeps coming back again and again, generation after generation, until the final Antichrist. But the spirit of Antichrist is already here. First John 4 and 5 make that very clear. And so what's, what was the church's response to this pressure and persecution from the beast and from society, from the world? What does it, Jesus say? I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you are what? You're holding on to my name and you did not deny your what 
your faith in me. You are enduring. You guys are doing a good job. Matthew 24, 9 says, they will hand you over to persecution and they will kill you and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. And they say, bring it on. We're holding on. Even Antipas, one of the faithful witnesses, died. And they are holding fast and holding on. They stood up to persecution. They did not love their lives to the point of death. In, according to persecution.com, one of the prayer requests there is for new or now whose family was tried to kill him in Vietnam. I'll read his story. In February 2017, just last month, a Hmong Christian brother now was confronted at his house by a relative with a gun, a knife, and an intent to kill him. Brother now has been persecuted by family members repeatedly since coming to faith in Jesus Christ two years ago. After their attempts at persuading him to deny Christ failed, they turned to anger and threats. When the relative, sh- when the relative showed up at the last month, a neighbor prevented him prevented the relative from shooting the bro- from brother from shooting brother now but the relative was still able to pull a knife out of his bag and injure brother now he was taken to the hospital for treatment and there's a picture of him with stitches where he was stabbed here at least two lacerations on his shoulder because he won't give up Jesus Christ he won't deny his faith in Christ he will hold on to the name what does this mean for us as a church brothers and sisters We are still here as a church. We still have our Baptist faith and message. We have a statement of faith. We publicly confess it. It's on our website. People know what we believe. We have confessed certain truths that the culture doesn't like. And if you are a member of this church, you're publicly a member of this church. And anyone who wanted to undo you in your job could just look at what church you're a part of. They could look at what you confess and and put that to the press, right? And get enough people in in these days to write against you, to lose your job, to put pressure on you. There's a risk in confessing Christ. And all that the Bible teaches about how we're to live in society. And brothers and sisters, you guys are doing well with confessing this as a church. So I commend you and the Lord commends us, commends you for that. You have endured. Many of you have had hard conversations and awkward moments with your friends and family because you've decided to speak up for Jesus. You have loved people with your life and with your words. And for that, you are to be commended. So the non-Christian world, you need to understand if you're not a Christian or if the world if the world listens to this sermon and they want to know, they, they try to press us and force us. You might try to force convictions out of Christians. But because Jesus commends us and sustains us, true Christians will hold on. You can't force it out of them. Amen. You can't. For families here, families in America and American evangelicalism is the, is the closest, most important relationships. But I tell you all, if you're going to die for Christ... And hold on, you need to love Jesus more than each other, more than your family, or that will be your downfall to Christianity. Make it clear to your family and friends, your closest friends, that Christ is infinitely more valuable to you than they are. Do it in ways that are not demeaning to them. Still love them, of course. They're still your priority, perhaps earthly speaking, but in in terms of earthly terms. But let them know that Christ is infinitely more important to you than they are. Matthew 10, Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be members of his own household. The person who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And the person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone finding his life will lose it. And anyone losing his life because of me will find it. If you're single and you're not married, love God more than you desire marriage. For those of you who desire marriage. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might think, man, Christians are crazy. They're deluded. I mean, all this for some Jewish man, some Jewish carpenter who died around 33 AD. Really? Like your your whole life is revolving around this guy? That's just way overboard. This church is way overboard. Well, I say to that, we're not crazy. We're just convinced. We're just convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. And that he is indeed our greatest treasure. And you can have that life too. Eternal life in Christ if you will come to him. So number one, repent because you, brothers and sisters, have endured satanic assault. And it will continue. You need to continue to endure. But you need to be encouraged that you have endured to this point and keep on going. Number two, second reason why we are to conquer by repenting. Conquer by repenting. Why should we repent? Repent because you have some here who hold false teaching. You have some here who have been tricked through the back door. Okay? We have some here who have been tricked through the back door. Now the threat here, look at verse 14. Yet I have this against you. You have some there, not all of you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Some of you in your church hold to this. In the same way, some of you hold to the teaching of Balaam, or not to Balaam, hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It's here within the church, within our membership, maybe even within the teachers, maybe within the pastor or the deacon. And it's here, and you need to realize that deception has come in the back door, even if you have a nice statement of faith. Some are holding to this teaching. Now, it's the teaching of Balaam. What's the teaching of Balaam? The teaching of Balaam, if you go to Numbers 23, turn to Numbers 23 if you can. It's the fourth book, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. The fourth book from the front, Numbers 23, is the story. I'm not going to, I'm going to read from Numbers 25, but Numbers 23, Balak is the king of Moab and he hires Balaam, who's a prophet of Yahweh, to curse the Israelites. Well, Balaam comes and he can't curse the Israelites. He says, I can only do what God tells me to do. That's the whole donkey talking story. I wish I could get into it now for the sake of time. I won't go into it here. But Balaam, as a prophet of Yahweh, but not an Israelite, is unable to curse the Israelites because Yahweh won't let him. God, that's God's name, the covenant God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh. He won't curse them. So something else happens. Go to Numbers 25, verses 1 and 2. Numbers 25. And keep your finger here. We're going to go back to this later on our next point. While Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, while Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people began to what? Indulge or prostitute themselves with women of Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices for their gods, and people ate and bowed in worship to their gods. So what happened here? You had Israelites who could not be cursed by the prophet. So what did Balak do instead? He sent his women, the single women, sent them into the Israelite camp to seduce them, to invite them 
to sacrifice to their gods, to prostitute themselves with them, to commit sexual immorality with them. And then through that, to end up worshiping their gods. That was a strategy. Seduction to idolatry. You can't get them to deny Yahweh. So what should you do? Go through their lusts. Say, you could still worship Yahweh and be with me. And you could still be worship Yahweh and be with me and eat at our table with sacrifice to idols. You could still be part of our worship service and sleep with me and still worship Yahweh. Notice it's not a straight denial of Yahweh. It's a backdoor way of coming in. And you know what God does? God rebukes him for it. Now, whose idea was this? This seduction to persecution, this backdoor way into the people of God. Whose idea was this? Go to Numbers 31. Keep your finger in Numbers 25. We'll go back there later. But Numbers 31, verse 16. These are the ones who, at whose advice? At Balaam's advice inside the Israelites to unfaithfulness against Yahweh in the pure incident. So whose advice, whose counsel, whose idea was it for them to seduce and get Israel to idolize? Balaam, the prophet of Yahweh, who could not curse them because God would not let his mouth say it. But Balaam wanted the money. And so he found another way to get the money. He could not say it. God would not let his mouth speak it. So he came in the back door with another idea to weaken the people of God so that they can face the judgment of God. So Balaam was teaching basically that one could trust and follow Jesus and simultaneously eat meat sacrificed to idols or indulge in sexual immorality. Now when, when, when John is talking, when Jesus is talking about this in Revelation, maybe he's referring to spiritual adultery. Could be. I don't, I wouldn't want to say it's either or. Spiritual adultery is we're committed to God as our spouse and we worship other gods. That'd be like cheating on your spouse. When you worship other gods, that's idolatry. An image of that is called adultery. God says, you are an adulterous people. You're supposed to be committed to me, and you betray me like that? So it could be referring to spiritual adultery. I would not want to make it one or the other. Just say both. You know, maybe they're guilty of both. Sexual immorality physically and spiritually. Now the Nicolaitans, it says, in the same way, the next verse, verse 15, in the same way, you have some there who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So, so the Nicolaitans, I would say, is the same teaching. It's just the modern version of the teaching of Balaam. This compromised, subtle, sneaky, backdoor way of getting to subvert the people of God and true Christian discipleship. So what, so there's false teaching there that got that church to commit sexual morality and to idolize other gods. What are some teachings today that sneak up in churches that profess that Jesus Christ is Lord? That he died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, that the Bible is God's word, and that the Trinity is true. What teachings today threaten the church? I have four listed here. I don't have time to go through all four. One was racism and, and just kind of how it's thought of in the church, but I'll skip over that one for now. Um, but because this deals with sexual immorality explicitly, let's think about sexually immoral inroads into the church. What about homosexuality? Same-sex Marriage, so-called marriage. Our, our church's statement of faith says, Christians should oppose racism, every form of greed, selfishness and vice, and all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. Are there not churches that say that homosexual, homosexual acts are not a sin? And that, and that um, gay marriage is actual marriage and should be approved? 
There are churches that preach the gospel and will say that at the same time. They're not denying the gospel directly. They're just letting people in the back door. We dealt with this in our association three years ago in 2013 where we we dis, we um released a church that had this. And I told that pastor when I met with him, I said, you cannot preach the gospel to people who are in, who are engaging in this sexual sin. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 6, 6, 9 says this. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. And it goes on with another list of people. And I said, you cannot, you can't call them to repentance and faith in the gospel if you don't call it a sin. Because the text says these people, and by the way, it says greed too, so that's all of us, right? I mean, if you're like, well, I don't struggle with that. Well, you, do you struggle with greed? Idolatry? We'll get into idolatry in a second. All of us are on that list. But the point is you have to repent of all those sins, right? Amen. And if you don't call it a sin, you can't call them to repent of something you don't think is a sin. And therefore, you are cutting them off from gospel life. Now, you're not rejecting the gospel. He's like, PJ, I believe Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. I believe in the inerrancy of scripture. I said, yes, but you can't preach the gospel to these people. And therefore, you preach them a false gospel. And so we have to beware of how it creeps in the church. And it's not just the leadership. We have a, a dear family friend where the parents are on the stance, but their child going to a Christian school is starting to say that the school and the church is judgmental in saying that it's wrong. It creeps up in the home. It creeps up in the culture. It creeps in among the members. It doesn't have to be the pastor who holds to this. Do you know that every member of our church does not agree with everything that I that that is taught up here? Is that right? And we have a Baptist faith and message. We have an actual statement of faith. Do you know that not every one of our members is consistent with that all the time? Right? Every member can still hold to their own teaching and that's how they function in their homes, at the workplaces, with their families. And what's coming in? The teaching of Balaam. The teaching of the Nicolaitans through the back door. We got a healthy church. We got a statement of faith. We got expository preaching. And yet through the back door, you have members who hold to these things and the other members of the church tolerate it and don't confront it. It's not my business. Who am I to say something against what a fellow member teaches? And that's another false teaching, false love, right? judgmentalism as if we can't ever rebuke people people say you can't judge and you're right we can't judge jesus says don't judge lest you be judged but what does he say in that same paragraph take the log out of what your own eye and then what take the what speck out of who your brother's eye that can't be contradicting verse one of not being judgmental right there has to be a way to take a speck out of a brother's eye without being judgmental if you're going to take the whole paragraph right it's a false teaching in many churches that you can't confront sin. And that has crept up in solid, orthodox, Bible-believing churches. It is very subtle. It's very subtle. So here's the sexual morality through that side of things. And then we have... Well, even, even when, when we think about sexual morality, let, let's, let's realize this. It's not just, before we just go off on homosexuality because we're consistent there as this church, at least confessionally, what about other sexual immoralities that have creeped into our church? Sinful and illegitimate divorce? Who am I to call someone out and say you should not get divorced? Right? Isn't the divorce culture pervasive in our society? 
where there's no fault divorce started in California by Ronald Reagan. So can we as a church call out illegitimate divorce and call people to repentance? Can we call out adultery? Can we call out fornication? Isn't it almost a given that if you're dating before marriage that that's just part of the package in our culture today? Pornography? Was it eight or nine out of ten men in the church indulge in pornography? In the church? Is that tolerated? Self-pleasuring? Unchecked lustful thoughts? Without any repentance? Without any questioning? Without any challenging from the church family? You know, my typical default as a pastor is when I see two Christians who are def- are dating for over a year, my default is that they are committing sexual immorality on some level. That's the default. I'm not saying they are. I'm not saying I know everyone's heart. I'm just saying, statistically speaking, as a pastor, that's just what it is. And I'd be a fool to not ask about that with members of our church who are dating. And we would be foolish as members of the church to not ask that about our fellow members who are dating and to pray for them and to encourage them and to strengthen them, lest the teaching of Balaam and Balak and the Nicolaitans take hold of their souls. Amen. All right, so you got this teaching that sneaks in, but it's not just sexual morality; it's also idolatry. What kind of idols are there? It's not just the sexual idols of addictions to pornography or fetishisms that promise but don't deliver a sense of intimacy and acceptance. Ideals of physical beauty could also be an idolatry in yourself or in your partner. Romantic idealism of how much you're supposed to romance each other, that can be idolatrous. Here's a list of idols from Tim Keller. I'm just going to read some. That was one from him. um, Another idol is political or economic idols, ideologies to the left or to the right, and libertarian that absolutize some aspect of political order and make it the solution to our society. It has to be the left. It has to be the right. That is the solution from God. Deifying certain political stances, deifying or demonizing free markets, for example. It could be a good thing. It could not be. It can be debated. But it's either from God or it's from Satan. Racial and national idols, racism, militarism, nationalism, ethnic pride that turns out to be bitter or oppressive. I add to Tim Keller's list here on this point. It could be ethnocentric idols of personal perspectives and experience that disable you from listening to and understanding someone different than you. You can't even hear what they're saying because you're holding on to your idol. You can't hear their gripe or their pain. Relational idols, dysfunctional family systems of codependency, fatal attraction, living your life through your children. That's an idol. Religious idols, moralism, legalism, idolatry of success or gifts, idolatry of the church, cultural idols, radical individualism in the West, individual happiness at the expense of the community in shame cultures like Asian cultures, make an idol out of family and the clan at the expense of individual rights. All of these are undergirded by deep idolatry. Here's four deep idols. Motivational, or power idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have power and influence over fill in the blank. That's idolatry. Power idolatry. Approval idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by fill in the blank. If it's not God, it's idolatry. The comfort idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure experience or particular quality of life. Brothers and sisters in our church, 
Talk to the older members here who are going through pain every day, just like we heard our sister Carol going through. And hear their endurance. And kill the comfort idol idol in your lives, you young and healthy ones. Control idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over my life in this certain area. Anyone not guilty here of idolatry? Has not the teaching of the Nicolaitans snuck in the back door of our church? So how do we counter this? Well, as a church family, we need to meditate on Scripture. We need to meditate on Scripture, receive correction, and ask God to reveal those straying ways in us. We need to be correctable. If you're not receptive, Proverbs calls you a fool. A fool rejects rebuke, right? A fool rejects counsel. A wise person runs to counsel. Wasn't that one of the quotes of Carol Armstrong to um, to Nikki, right? About a, a wise person walks among the wise. A fool finds other fools as an echo chamber to reinforce their foolishness. What does this mean as a church family? The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth, it says in 1 Timothy 3. So let us listen to each other and get a sense for the deception and idols in each other's hearts. Listen to each other. Ask each other how you're doing. Go beneath the surface of of mere pleasantries. Then speak the truth in love to one another. Gospelize each other daily. Let's wrestle together with what's being said, what's being thought. If you're not a Christian... You need to understand that Christians will always fight to not compromise. So you can try, and they do try. The world does try to get us to compromise, but we need to be vigilant, Christians. Parents, teach your kids when they're young through stories, memory verses, and a Baptist catechism or something like that. As they get older, you can't just do memory work. you got to actually connect the dots for your kids. Show them the logic of how it fits. And then teach them to articulate it themselves and make decisions for themselves based on what they learn. So they stand on God's word even if that means standing against you. Parents, teach your kids to go against you when you are against God. Kids, be teachable. When your parents tell you you're doing something wrong, don't get angry. Parents are not against you. They're against sin and foolishness, and we all have it. So don't get mad when you get corrected or taught. Instead, try to learn as much as you can and say Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Dad. Thank you for correcting me. I need to learn. Okay, so we need to realize and repent because we've endured satanic assault, because we've been tricked through the back door. These next two are a little bit... Well, this next one's very quicker. Repent, verse 16. Repent because... Repent because... You'll avoid judgment if you repent. Look at verse 16. Keep your finger in numbers, but go back to Revelation chapter 2. What does it say here? Verse 16. So repent of this backdoor teaching. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So Jesus tells us very clearly, we need to repent. He's telling the angel to repent, but that's saying that the whole church needs to repent. Notice it's not just those who hold the teaching. Who has to repent? The church. This is corporate repentance. Why is this corporate repentance? Because we're a team. Right? We're a team. Teams win or lose games. It's not the individual in a team sport. Right? You don't have an individual who, you know, um, there was an NBA game recently. Some young guy, youngest player ever to score 70 points in a game. And his team lost. He didn't win for scoring 70 points in a game. 
because it's a team sport. And in this way, as we seek to conquer, now there is individual conquering. That's why it's always to the conqueror individually. But there's a, there's a team aspect. And as a team, if we let this teaching into our church, we have to repent. Not point the finger at the other church member and say, you have to repent because look at you're holding to this. We have to repent. That cultivates a spirit of humility in the church family. That's what Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 says. Take care, brothers, lest there be an evil, unbelieving heart in any of you causing you to fall away from the living God. But encourage, encourage each other every day as long as it is called today so that none of you are hardened by sin's deception. Amen. The teaching deceives. It hardens your heart. So encourage each other daily. Why should we repent? What does Jesus say here in the verse? Verse 16. What happens if you don't repent? Jesus is going to what? Come to you quickly with what? And what is he going to do? These are, these are fighting words. I mean, the word fight is there. He will come and what? Fight against the members of your church who are holding to this teaching. Jesus will fight against them with the sword of his mouth. What does that mean to fight against them with the sword of his mouth? The sword is a sword of judgment, right? The, the, the government has a sword in Romans 13. They exercise a sword. Jesus has a sword of judgment. Now, um, go back to Numbers 25. Just keep your finger there, but go back to Numbers 25. Look at verse 3. What, so there was, there was this sexual morality and idolatry there in this Balaam story. What did, what did God tell them to do? Look at Numbers 25 verse 3. So Israel aligned itself with Baal, Peor. And what did God say? What did, what was God's response? The Lord what? The Lord's anger burned against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and what? Execute them. Execute them where? Where? In broad daylight before Yahweh so that his burning anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses told the Israel judges, kill each of them, each of the men who align themselves with Baal Peor. Kill them. <coughs> Capital punishment, death penalty, right here, right now, kill them. Not personal vengeance, this is judicial, right? And then what happens? Verse 6. An Israelite man as they're weeping, an Israelite man came bringing a Midianite woman to his relatives in the sight of Moses and the whole Israelite community while they were weeping at the entrance of the tabernacle. So this guy did not get the memo. They're, they're, they've executed leaders and some guy was out meeting with someone and he brings her back without realizing that everyone is weeping over this sin. So what happens in verse 7? When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, Son of Aaron, the priest, saw this. He got up from the assembly, took a spear in his hand, followed the Israelite man into the tent, and drove it through both of both the Israelite man and the woman, through her belly. Then the plague on the Israelites was stopped. Now get this. But those who died in the plague numbered how much? 24,000 died. Besides the ones that were executed for their immorality. Is it just on those who committed immorality? No, 24,000 were swept up in a judgmental plague for the sin of these people. That's a sword. And Jesus says here, Bethany Baptist Church, some of you are holding to this teaching and Jesus will come against us and fight them with the sword of his mouth judging them. Now, what is that sword of his mouth? In in Revelation 19.15, it says a sharp double-edged sword, a sharp, sharp sword came from his mouth, Jesus' mouth, so that he might strike the nations with it. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God. 
the Almighty. Have you ever heard the, the phrase grapes of wrath? Trampled under the wrath of God? That's what the sword is. And members of our church will be thrown in to that wine press and trampled. And they were members of our church. There are people we said happy Lord's Day to, that we greeted every Sunday. Cut off if we don't repent. Brothers and sisters, we need to repent corporately as a church. We need to have a heart of repentance for our church. You as an individual member of this church, we as a church family, we need to repent of compromising teaching. If you want to look at what repentance might look like, just write this down. We're not going to have time to look at it now. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Read the repentance of Daniel. I read it again last night. It is a sweet prayer from Daniel, who is one of the most righteous men in the Old Testament, right? Name one of Daniel's sins from his story. Sunday school class that just went through Daniel. Any sin that you could point out? None, right? Not to say he was sinless, but there was just none on the record. And yet he's repenting. He's not just saying, God, forgive Israel for their sin. Forgive us. We sinned against you. We. He's part of it. So the church must repent as a church. And our, and as individuals, we need to check our own hearts, right? Don't look at other people's specks in their, eye, in their eyes first. Look at the log in your own eye, right? Amen. Look at the idolatry and immorality in your own heart. Confess it to God. Confess it to others and get help. Get accountability. Get prayer. Get light on the darkness so that it dies. Amen. And then help each other remove specks. If you're not a Christian, you might be saying, this is exactly why I could never become a Christian because Christians are hypocrites. PJ, you just admitted it. Christians are immoral. Christians are idolatrous. Christians are hypocrites. Some of the most fervent Christians are the most condemning, exclusive, and intolerant. The church has a history of supporting injustices, of destroying culture, and of oppression. And there are so many people who are not Christian who appear to be much more kind, much more gentle, much more caring, indeed moral, than many Christians. If Christianity is the true religion, then why can this be? How can this be? Why would such oppression have been carried on in the name of Christ with the support of the church, PJ? Tell me, why would I be a Christian? Three responses or four responses. Number one, there have been terrible abuses, and you're right. Christians have sinned. There are fake Christians, and there are real Christians who both sin. And we are guilty, and we need your forgiveness. Secondly, in the prophets and in the Gospels, Jesus and the Bible is more hard on hypocrisy than we are, than we could ever be. And so God is not ignorant of hypocrisy in the church. This whole text is about hypocrisy in the church, right? Third, when Martin Luther King confronted terrible abuses in the white church, he did not call them to loosen their Christian commitments. He called them to deepen it. That's the solution. To go deeper in Christianity, not to reject it. Press in further. So if you're not a Christian, you're saying Christians are hypocrites, we don't have a good answer in terms of saying, hey, no, we're not. We just want to say that Christ, that God sent his son into the world to die for us hypocrites, to die for us sinners, to take the cost on himself on the cross, to die for our sins and rise from the dead so that if we repent from our sins and our religion and our hypocrisy and trust in Christ, we will be forgiven and saved. We'll be given his Holy Spirit and he'll begin to transform us out of the hypocrisy. Not immediately, but progressively. 
And so we admit that, but guess what? Aren't non-Christians hypocrites too? Aren't non-Christian sinners too? I'm not saying that's to make light of ours. I'm just saying we all are, right? So we all need a savior. So I want to invite you, if you're not a Christian, to join the realized hypocrites society. We realize we're hypocrites for the most part. And we remind each other we are. And we remind each other to go back to Christ because we can be forgiven and changed out of our hypocrisy slowly but surely by Christ's Holy Spirit. Okay, so we need to realize and repent, number one, because we've endured satanic assault. Number two, because we've been tricked through the back door. Number three, because we will avoid Christ's sword of judgment. And lastly, we need to repent because Jesus gives a reward. Jesus gives the reward. Now, let's go to the last verse here, verse 17. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches. Now we get the most conf- one of the m- most confusing parts of the whole chapter, the two chapters. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. What is the hidden manna? So if you conquer Satan, sin, the world, even sin amongst us together, if you conquer, and if you do it individually, notice, it's to the one who conquers, not to the church. So you can conquer individually, even in a church that's apostate. To the one who conquers, what do you receive? Hidden manna. What's hidden manna? Do you remember the story of manna in the Old Testament? Exodus 16, they wanted bread, they were hungry, and so Moses said, God will provide bread tomorrow, go to sleep. In the morning, there's white, flaky stuff all over the floor. They take it, they pick it up, and it's bread. It's manna from heaven. God was miraculously feeding Israelites who were camping in tents, traveling by foot from Egypt to Canaan, the promised land. And you have no food, how do you feed a million people every day? Well, you get heaven from, you get manna from heaven. And so what they did with some of that is they put some of that in the Ark of the Covenant and that was hidden away there. And according to Jewish tradition, not to scripture, Jeremiah hid the Ark of the Covenant. And there's this Jewish tradition that when the Messiah and the new temple appear, the hidden manna and the Ark will come out with it. So it's this idea that when Christ appears or when when the Messiah comes, the hidden manna will be available to God's people in the new temple. Well... Christ has come and he is the Messiah and we, and he is the temple and we are the temple and the temple is coming when Christ comes again. And so we can now partake of the hidden manna now and then in the new earth. And, and who is that hidden manna? Who is the bread of life? Jesus. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Don't look for the bread that comes from earth. You'll get hungry again, but you'll have ever replenishing bread in me to satisfy your deepest hungers and thirsts. That's why Isaiah 55 says, Come everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. Without money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to come to Jesus who will feed your soul and satisfy your thirst. What you have does not satisfy. It leaves you empty and you know it when you put your head on your pillow at night and you get to have those blank minded thoughts that just kind of thoughts that come across and those uncomfortable thoughts you try to push out because you start to realize things about life. In those times of fear, you know that you don't have bread that really satisfies. But God invites you to come. And if you are a Christian, we feast on Christ now and we will when he comes again. 
Now, what's the white stone and the new name? You get a white stone, and on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, the white stone, there's two views on the white stone, and maybe it's a little bit of both. We don't know for sure. One was that you use the white stone for jury, for the jurors who are voting on someone's case. So there was a white stone and a black stone. When we had to vote on whether the person was acquitted or guilty, you put white stones or black stones in the hat, and that's how you voted. Now, if you got a white stone, that meant you were not guilty, but you were innocent. So if that's the interpretation, then what it means is if you conquer, that means that you are righteous in Christ, that you were truly saved. And you truly endured because you were really saved when you professed faith in Christ. So that that's one way of thinking about it. The other way of thinking about it is that the white stone was given to athletic competitors when they win. When you were a winner or a champion, you would get a white stone. And that would become your ticket to go into these great feasts of champions. And so you would go, you'd put, give your white stone, you would enter into the feast of champions, of victors, of conquerors. And so if you conquer, you get a white stone, which means you enter to all the conquerors, all those in Christ who have conquered Satan, sin, death, the world, even sin in the church in their own hearts, who've conquered all the way to the end. We celebrate with them in the great feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the reward. That's why we should repent now. So you receive that reward. And the rewards, all seven churches, all the rewards is eternal life in different images. And so do you want the feast? Do you want to know that you were justified in Christ? Do you want the new name that no one knows except you and Jesus? What that shows is that even though we're a church, we all have an individual, unique relationship with Christ, don't we? We all know God personally. We know him corporately. We're a family. But we all have our individual relationship with Christ. And you went through things that only you and Christ know that you've gone through. And he gives you a new name showing that intimacy between just you and him. What a sweet reality. God accepts every true Christian who's a conqueror and gives him that new name. If there was no reward, if there was no eternal life, if there was no resurrection from the dead, if there was no feast in the end, if there was no justification and righteousness and access to God in the end, then aren't we wasting our time suffering for God? Why would we offend people? Why would we confront people in sin? Really, do we really want awkward relationships amongst each other? No, Paul says, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, if there's no reward, eat, drink, and what? Be merry, for tomorrow you die. No big deal. Why, why, why face awkward situations now? But if there is actually a reward in the end, if there is a white stone and hidden manna and a name that you get, then isn't it worth it to endure now? Amen. Isn't it worth it to speak up? Isn't it worth it to repent together? Amen. It is. And so I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to repent because there is a reward. If you're not a Christian, we want you to have that reward too. So please come to Jesus and find satisfaction that you can find nowhere else. So what's the main point of this sermon? Realize and repent of allowing tricky teaching and compromised teaching to have life in our midst. Repent because we've endured satanic assault. Repent because we've been tricked through the back door. Repent so that we avoid judgment. And repent because we have a reward. Hidden manna, a white stone, and our name written on the stone. You know, I had a friend who served faithfully with me in the church growing up. And then he got a hold of some stray teaching, just a little stray teaching that was subtle. A Nicolaitan-like teaching that you can't know for sure whether things are really true. And that wreaked havoc in his soul. 
And he was a member of our church. And he went from there to eventually um, fornicating and then committing adultery and, and wooing someone else's spouse away and impregnating her and then, and then breaking up that relationship and then got caught up in the, the gender confusion and doesn't define the, the, themselves as a male or female now. And this person was a leader in our church. One of my dearest friends growing up. And our church did not repent. As a church, we didn't repent. As a church, we did not take responsibility. You know, Phineas taking the spear, I'm not saying we, you know, take a spear and thrust it through, but, but in the church, what does that mean? That means accountability. That means church discipline, right? Amen. The church dropped the ball. Now, praise God, he's still alive. It's not too late, but that's where he is now because the church did not repent. We also have stories in my experience by God's grace where we have people who have been caught up in sexual morality and idolatry and have been confronted by the church. Some at stage two of just a group of people confronting them. Sometimes at stage four where the whole church actually excommunicates them and brings them back. And we have seen them restored and not deceived because the church repented, because the church held each other accountable, because they were responsible and did not want the sword of Christ's mouth to come against their people. So, brothers and sisters, if we don't repent, we may see some of our dear church family. I shudder to think that we might see some of our church members on the wrong side of the final judgment, bringing deep distress and sadness to us. It may even be you or me. But if we realize our sin and if we repent, we'll be refreshed with fresh spiritual power by God to speak the truth in love, to take responsibility for each other's discipleship, like membership is, to strengthen our brothers to make disciples here in Southeast LA and beyond. So let us realize this compromised teaching that Satan uses to tear down our church. Let's repent together as a church family as we seek to conquer Satan, the world, and our sin only by the grace of God. Father, take these words, we pray. Take these truths. We look at the list of our active members. We got over 800 who are not active that we're also wanting to not face the sword, but we don't know them. Lord, help us. Forgive us. Forgive us for letting Nicolaitan teaching creep up in our own souls, creep up in our families, creep up in our friendships. Forgive us as a church for letting it creep in. Forgive us for hearing stray thoughts that are wrong and not saying anything because we don't want an awkward conversation. Forgive us for thinking only about ourselves and not about others and not about your glory. Cleanse us as a church family, we pray. Thank you for the repentance you've already granted us and for the, the, the ways that we have been obeying this. We pray that we would do it still more by your strength. So help us, Lord. Only you can hold us to the end. Only you can hold us fast. We can work, we can obey you, but ultimately you have to do it. And so, Father, we pray that through each other's love, through each other's repentance, through our shared life together as a church family, we pray that you would hold us fast. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.